Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Ma and Pa operators all over the country are selling their mobile home parks to investors as they reach retirement age. And there's lots of great value-add deals to be had. When you have limited supply, an increase in demand, and the most affordable housing option available, you have an incredibly attractive asset class. Todd Solzinger, founder of Blue Elm Investments, is acquiring mobile home parks in smaller markets outside growing metro areas. So today we have with us a gentleman, and I'm just gonna say I'm gonna say gentleman because we've been speaking now for 15 <laughs> minutes and and we have had a great conversation. Also a, a fellow Northern Californian, which always warms my heart. He's down there on the peninsula. Uh, he is has a highly focused business uh, in a great, great, great asset class, mobile home parks. He is the president of Blue Elm Investments. He is Todd Solzinger. Todd, welcome to Street Smart Success. Roger, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be on your show. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we've just been having a really nice uh, conversation, know some people in common. My goodness, it's a small world. So you're down there in, I'm going to call it mid-peninsula. Where do you hail from, Todd? Where were you born and raised and what was all that like? Yeah, so I was born and raised in San Jose, California, which uh, to find native Californians is often a uh, unusual thing to be. But anyway, I grew up here and went to college at San Jose State and uh, started my career from there. And I'm currently in Redwood City, which is home to Oracle and uh, quite a few other tech companies. It's about halfway between San Francisco and San Jose and about probably is the, you know, if I had to drive over to the Pacific Ocean right now, it'd probably take me about a half an hour to get there. What must be no traffic. Uh, right. And that would be saying like right now on a, a weekday afternoon. At <laughs> <laughs> 1115. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> that That is funny. And it's a gorgeous day. And uh, I wish I were down there driving to the coast now that you mention it. And so San Jose, boy, you, you watch that kind of uh, evolve into a just a tech mega megapolis, huh? I did. My parents actually moved from Southern California to Northern California in the 50s to take jobs at Lockheed because Lockheed opened a huge plant here. And for a time, that was the biggest employer. And slowly over time, other companies grew here. IBM, Hewlett Packard, Varian, a lot of these semiconductor and technology companies that also evolved into those early dot-com companies, Netscape and Yahoo and uh everything that's happened since then. So yeah, I've seen an incredible amount of growth from a population that came along with rising housing prices and traffic and uh, good and bad things that come with the kind of explosion that's happened in Silicon Valley related to all the companies are here and all the kind of yeah, amazing technologies that have been developed during the time that I've, I've been here. Yeah, I love history. I love the Bay Area and Bay Area history. But I just learned something. I did not know at any point in time that Lockheed was the biggest employer up here. And in fact, I didn't even know they were here, if I want to be honest about it. I, I thought I always thought that like Southern California was a huge was a huge defense hub of employment and got really hit in the early nineties when it 
kind of evaporated. I didn't even realize they were strong up here. Yeah, they had huge plants here out near Moffett Field. And yeah, I was reading something recently. Uh, there was a story about the history of Silicon Valley. And I think it said like in Sunnyvale in the 60s and 70s, one out of every four people worked for Lockheed. And I saw that every time I go out to the grocery store with my dad, he'd just run this to me. Oh, I work with that guy. Oh, I work with that guy. And it was just, <laughs> they were all over the place. I had I had no idea. Are they still a big employer down there? Um, you know, not as big. Lockheed was purchased by Martin Marietta, so it's now called Lockheed Martin. So their headquarters are back east somewhere. So I think they probably have, if I had to guess, maybe three or four thousand people down here, down from probably as high as twenty or twenty-five thousand back in their heyday. Got it. Got it. You know, we were up, my wife and I and one of our sons, we were up in Seattle and we went to the, I think it was the Lockheed, not headquarters, because like you just said, they're back east, but maybe, no, you know what, wrong, it was Boeing, but we went to see the plant and to go see an airplane <laughs> plant is pretty darn cool, man. It was like the biggest building I'd ever been in and to look at them making these planes was like the coolest thing, I think. Oh, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was very cool. You went to San Jose State and so what did you do post-college? Uh, well, I was working part-time for a technology company when I was still in school. And then after I graduated, I started working there full-time. They were a networking hardware company. Uh, spent a couple years down in Mountain View working for them. And then had the great fortune at that point in time to get relocated to the UK, where I spent about, uh, about two and a half years working in England, where the company's European headquarters were, and was able to travel in this finance role I was in to subsidiaries that we were we ran in Milan and Berlin and just outside of Paris. So I had a great experience, probably had, you know, no, not the experience that really should have been required to take on that role, but I just was thrown in head first and figured it out. And that was kind of the start of my uh, corporate finance career. What, when was that? That was uh, between, I'd say, between 91 and 94. Got it. Is when I was there. Sounds fantastic. When you were in the UK, where were you? Uh, I was in a town called Abingdon, which was just outside of Oxford. Got it. It's about an hour from London. I see. Sounds like fantastic experience. It was good experience. Yeah, it was very interesting to live in a different country of any country that you could potentially go to. England was relatively easy because you didn't have the language barrier, but it was definitely so much different than living in the U.S. and definitely gave me a great perspective once I moved back here. You know, it's funny you say that because like back then, early 90s, well, compared to today, it really was. Today, it's a lot more similar just with globalization and communication and, and um, the internet. It doesn't feel that much different than the States, but back then, way, way more so. And, you know, the same could be said of the rest of Western Europe. And, you know, yes, I would say so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, the only way I could keep track of what was kind of going on with the Giants, I'm a big baseball fan, and I followed the San Francisco Giants for a long time, and it was, you know, again, no internet, no ability to check on scores or watch anything. I mean, literally, I'd get to, like, the weekly Oxford newspaper that would have this little tiny line score that might periodically say what was happening with American baseball, and that was my only contact with it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing to think, you know, that that because guys that are as old as you or I, Todd, that 30 years ago actually doesn't feel, well, I should say for me, 
30 years ago doesn't feel like that long ago. I mean, it does, oh, yeah. but it doesn't. And so what you're saying is like, yeah, isn't that amazing? You know, it's so true. It's like unfathomable to think that you couldn't, you just go on your phone when you're eating dinner and get the giant score. Yeah, right, right. I know. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> Un- unbelievable. Well, how, how then do you get into the, of all things, Todd, how do you get into the mobile home park business? Well, it, it was a long journey to get there. I had always had an interest in real estate, but, you know, just having jobs in technology and going from company to company and getting promoted, you just kind of get in that hamster wheel of Again, trying to find the next job or continue to do what you're doing best and how you're getting paid best. But I always had an interest in real estate and uh, met, I had a neighbor that I had at the first house I lived in in San Jose. And he was this like really mild mannered guy, you know, drove a beat up truck, didn't dress really nice. But the more I got to know him, he would say things like, oh, yeah, I've got to go check on my rentals around the corner. Uh, yeah, you know, there's this, uh, I got this strip mall I own over in Santa Cruz over the hill. And every time I talked to him, I found out how much more real estate he owned and got to talk to him a little bit more and just found out that over time he had just slowly built this real estate empire where he didn't work for anybody. He just lived off his rental income. And so that was kind of my one of my millionaire next door moments where I met this guy and thought that would be amazing to be in that situation. So I was trying to figure out how I would do that. And I like, I think a lot of people that get in this business and initially start trying to figure out how they can buy single family homes because they're less expensive and that's somewhat doable to start. The trouble is in California, real estate prices are a lot higher than different parts of the country. So I met a few people actually through the real estate guys, Robert Helms and Russell Gray, who used to live here in Silicon Valley. And I started to go to some of their meetups they were having and met some turnkey providers who were selling single family homes in Dallas, Fort Worth. Was, was one of them Al Lee? Uh, no, it was actually the guy who was doing it back then was David Campbell. Okay, don't know the name, but I, I certainly know Robert Helms. I went, I went to one of his, and I, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but you, you brought it up. I saw Robert Helms at a learning annex event, you know, before, way before Zoom and webinars and all. I don't even know if you remember the, the learning annex, but anyway, no. you, you can go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So through them, I, and, and when I first heard about that, I thought, you got to be kidding me. Like to own a house a couple thousand miles away from where I live, I can't drive by it. I can't look at it. All these kind of things that when I talk to people about re- remote investing or some of the questions and concerns they have. But sure enough, I went there with, uh, took a field trip with Robert Russ and a group of investors. And we met property managers and insurance brokers and drove or insurance agents and drove neighborhoods, talked to other people who had done the same thing. And I was like, huh, this actually might work. So through that process, I ended up buying several single family homes in the Dallas Fort Worth market and uh, held those for a few years. And it, it really did work. If you have a good property manager who keeps you on top, top of things and finds the right tenants and can provide photographs if you need them, then it can work. And I ended up traveling to Dallas on a couple occasions for business and would drive by the houses just to check on them. And there's nothing really you can do. You drive by it and you can't go inside. You know somebody's living there because they're paying the rent. And then I drive off on my way and go, okay, well, I really didn't need to drive out here to see this, but I know there is always that sense of 
being able to be physically close to something to check on it that if you get over that mental hurdle that it is possible to do it to do it remotely it's it's absolutely doable so when when was that and how many houses did you own yeah so this started i bought my first houses in 2013 uh ended up buying four yeah, perfect in, in timing worth. yeah yeah so yeah so it was good timing for sure and then from there, I realized that it was going to take, if I wanted to get to the point of having passive income that could replace my W-2 income, that that was going to take a lot of houses. I'd have to save up even in a lower cost market like Dallas, you know, twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 for each house. And, uh, and then also through the real estate guys, they put on these syndication or kind of group investment training courses. So I thought, okay, maybe I can look into that and uh, find out a way to raise money from investors to buy bigger pieces of real estate. You know, I've got a passion for real estate, good background in finance. And I know a lot of people that like the idea of investing in real estate, but don't want to deal with the hassles of being a landlord or trying to find what markets, what properties and all that. So I decided at that point to that I wanted to start a real estate syndication business. But it took a couple of years. I went to my first syndication seminar back in 2015 and didn't do anything about it because, again, life gets in the way. And I was busy with my job and uh, my finance job at this uh, a couple of different technology companies that I was working with during the kind of 2000 yeah, during the 2010 to 2020 period. And I went back to another syndication seminar, the same one a couple of years later. So like listen to your listeners, sometimes you got to like keep at it and do the same thing, maybe, you know, one or two times before something actually clicks and you can really take some action. But uh, went back to the same syndication seminar and really decided to uh, double down and uh, founded Blue Home Investments to to create that syndication business. And then just through a lot of inter, you know, meetings that I was having with other people in the real estate space and in particular mobile home parks, um, listening to a lot of podcasts of other operators, uh, I was started by uh, with the idea of partnering with actually somebody I was working with to buy a park and uh, found a couple mobile home parks in Georgia, uh, got them under contract, started to go through the due diligence process. During that process, the guy that I was working with who was going to bring most of the money to the table said, one of my bigger investors fell through. He's nervous about mobile home park. So, you know, I can't partner with you on this. And I was like, oh man, this deal's dead. I'm not going to be able to do this. And then another friend of mine, another uh, podcaster, Marco Santarelli, uh, and I had dinner one night and he really encouraged me to say, you know, why don't you see if you can do this yourself? instead of trying to figure out if you can partner with this other guy, well, you can probably go out there and you've got contacts and people that you work with who might be interested. So that's what I did. I just kind of pushed forward, kept the deal under contract, went out to uh, a bigger group of my contacts that I'd made over the uh, few years and raised some money from uh, limited partner investors and ended up buying these mobile home parks. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. 
Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305 467 5909. You'll be glad you did. So when was that? Yeah, so that was in, and the, you know, the timing in terms of kind of how that project went and that that deal was uh, kind of just netting out now. It was September 2019. So only six months before COVID, which ended up having quite a big impact on that investment because we again bought the park in 2019, had our turnaround plan laid out with respect to a lot of the units that needed to be that had some rehab work that needed done rents were way below market uh you know put in new signage new mailboxes just some kind of uh, a lot of park infrastructure and cleanup things and then covid hit and we were then we, we now we have a mobile home park in a state that's typically very landlord friendly that all of a sudden was not because the courts were closed and we couldn't evict people so we had, did have some tenants whose jobs were legitimately affected by COVID. And then we have other ones that just took advantage of the situation and decided not to pay rent. <laughs> How fun. And um, in, in, in what, what was the purchase price and how much did you raise? Yeah, so the purchase price for the park was 825000 so I know when I, yes, yeah, so if you can imagine a 71 space mobile home park, it was actually two parks about a mile from each other, but we run them as one. So 71 spaces for $825,000. So, you know, and you can't buy a two bedroom house like anywhere within, you know, probably 30 miles of where I live for less than a million dollars. You know, when I first brought this deal to some of my local investors, they're like, how is that possible? That's <laughs> like twelve, like twelve grand or so. Exactly. Per, yeah, it's hilarious. And, and not every space was was full. There were some vacant lots. There were some vacant homes. So it was a, a kind of a value add turnaround play, but uh, but relatively inexpensive. And because of the fact that the seller didn't keep clean books or didn't really have any books, he was accepting only cash from his tenants. Uh, wow. was, we couldn't get bank financing for it. So he agreed to carry back a note. So we uh, had seller financing. So I raised about $600,000 uh, from investors. So half of that was for the down payment and half of it was uh, to be set aside for buying some homes for the vacant lots and yeah, doing some of that park cleanup infrastructure work and to rehab some of the vacant homes. You, um, you've got courage, my friend, my God, that you, you, you would do that in that far away. Cause it's not like it's a house, you know, in Fort Worth, which, which I have a feeling was probably built in the seventies or eighties or something. Yeah, right, like that. right, right. I, I mean, my God, unbelievable. Were these, uh, park owned homes or were the residents own the homes? Mostly park-owned, and, uh, and and I guess one of the things you said I, I had uh, courage to do it. One of the things that kind of gave me that little bit of courage was uh, during the process of when I was looking at all different kinds of asset classes to invest in, I had met a mobile home park consulting company that's actually based in Oakdale, California, in the Central Valley, about you know a couple hours from you and I, and 
they specialized in property management and uh, you know finding crews to rehab homes, finding houses to finding houses to fill vacant lots. So they had a, you know, a kind of a specialty in what I was looking to do, and they had they owned or not owned but managed. A, several other parks in Georgia as well as all throughout the Southeast. So that gave me, you know, a little bit of that, that, that courage you mentioned to say that it wasn't just, you know, me by myself trying to manage this asset or figure out how to do it. I was working with a team who had a lot of experience in the mobile home park business. Is Oakdale the place that calls itself the cowboy capital of the world? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a very, a very different place than uh, Northern California. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. I, a friend, of, a friend of mine was from Oakdale, but any, anyway, yeah, that's cool. They got a sweet little downtown down there. It's really nice. Yeah, no, I he loved it, and you know he ended up playing football at Cal. But that's a that's another story. Well, and so that's interesting. So there's a group out of Oakdale that owns about. I've never heard of these guys, which doesn't mean anything. But they uh, they they own a bunch of RV parks themselves, and they do consulting. And that's interesting. And so, yeah. So the guy that runs it, he he owns parks himself, but then he just manages for um, uh, for his clients. I don't know at any point in time, seventy to eighty parks across the country, with a lot of remote owners. Remote owners typically, often from California, and they've kind of figured out a way to be able to run these parks and keep on top of the managers. And uh, because they have clusters of parks in certain areas like around Georgia and in Mississippi and in Arkansas, that they can have some regional coverage where they might be able to have a regional manager bounce from park to park and check on how things are doing and have some boots on the ground, as they say, to keep an eye on the, on the, on the properties. So I'm getting then that you hired these guys to manage those two parks? Yes, that's correct. And, and, and then they just allocated somebody they had on the ground there because they had other parks to managing yours because it probably wasn't a full-time person, correct? That's correct, yeah. So it started off where we uh, kept the existing manager who was living in the park and she had some issues or had a relative that was unwell so she had to leave the park and we had to bring somebody else in and i think that's that's one of the more challenging parts about the mobile home park business is finding good capable managers so we went through a few people until we now finally have a good husband and wife team that live in the park. And usually in those situations, depending on the size of the park and maybe their skill sets or what needs to be done, it's oftentimes a combination of free rent for, like we have a house there that the park owns that we're letting them live in for free and we'll pay them uh, you know, an additional salary, uh, kind of a fixed salary. But then if they do additional work, maybe to turn homes, do a rehab, uh, certain other projects, we'll, we'll pay them on top of that. So it does depend on the park size. I know we've got other parks that, uh, uh, that I'm aware of that CCI manages that maybe it's only a 20 space park and you've got somebody living there and they get free rent and that's all they get because it's maybe the, what they do is only worth the equivalent of five or $600 a month for, you know, collecting rent once a month and run down to the bank. And that's kind of all they do. So when you had to go through and to identify this couple and there were some misfires along the way, which I could 
could only imagine what what that was like having to deal with that. <laughs> um, what role, if any, did CCI play in that? Or were they kind of like armchair going, "Well, Todd, do this, do that," or did they actually find those people themselves, or how, you know, who do, who did what in that process? Yeah, so they're they're very active, and that's kind of part of what they're consulting services, management services they offer is to do that work, to, you know, have connections, to, you know, know the right questions to ask, because it's not the kind of person that would be the typical person I probably interviewed in my corporate career, where you've got a, a resume and experience, where'd you go to school and, and you know, teeth. those kind of, right. <laughs> You know, it's it's different. Said, hey, you know, like, like you're living in a mobile home park in Georgia. Like, wh- what are your skill sets? You know, what do you have? Uh, you know, do you, can, <laughs> can, can you use a computer? You know, do, can, you know are you comfortable using a scanner? Because you know, you've got people that are, you know, hardworking, you know, good people. But again, they you know they don't have high school diplomas or college degrees or know how to use Excel, but they know how to collect rent. And the the husband and wife team that you have now are they siblings? No, they're not. Uh, (laughs) That does happen. I had, I, I'm, I'm, uh, what's the word? I'm just, ter- I'm a terrible human being. But anyway, I'm sorry. I interrupted the flow of uh, this conversation. Uh, so another, uh, I issue forth another apology. I had yeah. to ask. <laughs> so, so I get it. Yeah. So it's hard to find the management piece of that for all the obvious reasons. So, so here's, so here's the question. So park owned. So, you know, the, the, the two things I know about or have heard about, you know, mobile home parks is you, you want the residents to own them and, you know, that way they never leave and you know it's it, they pay you there's very little to have to do and i guess what was the what was kind of the thinking around that and your strategy and all that uh yes those are kind of the models you've got some parks that are kind of 100 percent one way or the other all tenant owned homes or all park owned homes and often sometimes in the middle one of the things that i think attracted me to the park in georgia uh, the parks in georgia that i bought was that a little bit of a mix of tenant owned and park owned um but also it was really from the guidance that i had received from uh, cci in particular their president robert merchant who had had a lot of experience in, the, in this business and in his experience owning parks and running them for other people had found that he could you know make more money have a higher bottom line if you own the houses rather than just renting out the lots now along with that comes you know more maintenance higher turnover more repair so they have to be managed more closely and there is more cost the offset to that is Like in the parks in Georgia, for example, the the rent for the lot itself for the people that own their own homes, the market was around, say, 200 to 225 a month. The guy, because he was only collecting cash, had not raised the rent because he just didn't want to cause any ripples in the park. People were paying between $50 a month and 125. So well below market. But we even thought if we even if we get these up to, say, 225 in that same park, when we owned the house and we brought in some uh, used refurbished three bedroom houses that we immediately rented for $600 a month. So we got the situation, okay, do we rent the pad out for 200 or 225 or to rent the house itself out for 600? And while there's additional cost to maintain it and the turnover is higher, you're still making that $400 spread 
every month over just charging the lot rent. So, so you can make more money doing it, but it's a, it's a different kind of a different kind of park to run, a different kind of tenant base, and you definitely have to you know, be more on top of things and know how to run those. Um, I know quite a few people that are in the business that do focus on all tenant-owned home parks because they're much less headache. They're easier to finance. Yeah, people do stay there longer. There's, again, less to do on the park. So there's uh, just really kind of depends what kind of park owner you want to be. Similar to saying, do you want to be a, you know, kind of brand new A-class apartment operator or do you feel more comfortable in kind of affordable housing C-class apartments? That would be kind of a maybe an apartment equivalent. Analogy, sure. And then where is it in where is it in Georgia and how old is the park? Uh, it, it's, the town is called Milledgeville, and it was about an hour and a half southeast of Atlanta. And that's the other thing about the mobile home park business that's kind of interesting is you can find sometimes smaller towns that have a decent economic base, possibly not a big uh, uh, supply of affordable houses, oftentimes not big apartment complexes like you might find in, in bigger cities. And you, you can do well in smaller markets. So Milledgeville has about uh, about uh, 55, 60,000 people. And, you know, I had certainly never heard of it before I uh, discovered this park. But when I traveled there, it was like, wow, there's actually a community college and two other colleges. And there was a helicopter manufacturing plant and a carpet manufacturer. And there was a large prison on the outskirts of town. So there was, there was an economic base that gave me comfort that there'd be a consistent demand, uh, demand for tenants. Uh, what would you and what how old is the park? Uh, you know, we really don't know. We know that the the oldest tenant had been there probably twenty plus years, but we there were no real records that said when the property was actually first developed and had its first mobile homes placed on it. How, how old are most of the homes on there? Um, I would the, the, the homes range from between uh, I would say probably early eighties to late nineties. Got it. So when you so when you pull up to it, and this is such a subjective thing to to describe, but does it does it feel like uh, okay? This is a place, and not not necessarily that you're going to live there that I would, but is it a place that scares you to death and you're like, oh my god, I can't believe people live this way, or is it kind of like <laughs> well, the, the, you know, the reason I ask is because I I'm a passive investor, and I actually invested in a park down in Palm Springs. And then my wife and I were down there uh, about a year ago and we're like, hey, honey, let's go see the, the park that we're partners in. And we drove through there and we were horrified. I mean, mm -hmm, we're like, mm -hmm. it was all asphalt and homes. And it, and it just, we were like crestfallen that we had made this investment. I think it's going to do fine. And it's a great market, but we were like, God, we, we, we could, we would never live there. Uh, I mean, there was hardly any grass. A lot of the homes seemed like they were from, could have been from the seventies. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's the reference for my question. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's a great question. And I, you know, while I wouldn't want to live in any of the parks that I've acquired, I wouldn't have bought a park that I would have thought I, you know, that would have been scary for somebody to go through or would have been in, in really bad condition. Um, so I think if you drove through this, uh, and, and again, there's, it's interesting, it, it's, there's two different parks and one of them kind of looks more like a traditional 
mobile home park. It has a fence and a sign in front. And you drive in the driveway and um, and enter the park. And it's mostly single wide homes. Like I said, you know, between uh, you know now probably you know twenty plus and maybe forty years old. So you know nothing fancy for sure. But the tenant base we're serving is also looking at. Do I rent this, you know, two-bedroom apartment in town for, you know, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars, or do I rent a, you know, two or three-bedroom mobile home for, you know, six hundred dollars, for example? And if you're a family, maybe husband and wife, two or three kids, you know, it's a, it's more attractive to actually have a house that you can drive up to. You've got a little yard around it versus being in a two-bedroom or even or even three-bedroom apartment. So while I would say they're not fancy uh, by any means, like no amenities, these are two, two-and-a-half-star parks on a scale of one to five. And so it's not like some of the nicer five-star parks that you might see where there's a, a pool and a clubhouse and things like that. This is really just uh, some kind of simple, affordable housing for tenants. Are you, are, would you say, or I'll ask it this way, what percentage of the tenants are families? I would say in the park, uh, parks in Georgia, I would say probably 60 to 70% would ah, be families. Yeah. Got, got it. Okay. Well, in what you say makes like just, I mean, it's like a ton of sense, right? You, you also don't have. You know, you're not sharing a wall with somebody. You're not mm-hmm. having to share an elevator or, you know, you've got some privacy. Do you pay utilities or, or do the tenants pay? In, in this situation, the uh, we pay for the utilities. Oh, sorry, we pay for uh, garbage and sewer and the tenants pay for electricity and water. I see. Because it's on, it is on city utilities. I see. So that's a good thing. And what, what percent occupancy was it when you bought it and what is it now? Yeah, so the occupancies actually decreased from the time that we bought it. Um, and again, this is kind of related to the COVID story where we bought the park and uh, it was around 70 to 75% occupied. And so we took over and we said, okay, everybody, you got to clean up your yards. You know, you have to pay your rent on time. You can't pay with cash anymore because we don't want our manager to be you know, have a bunch of cash <laughs> stashed in the office. So, so during that time, we had to let quite a few people go because they didn't want to follow the rules. They were just kind of used to the way the old owner had run the property. And then COVID hit, so we had this kind of long stretch of uh, long stretch where the tenant, many tenants, didn't pay, and we're we're just kind of making our way through that now. Uh, you know, the courts opened back up in like in the middle of 2021, but it did then take some time because there were big backlog, a big backlog of cases because they'd been closed for so long. So we're probably over the last maybe maybe three or four months ago, we kind of got the last of the bad non-paying tenants out. And now we're in the process of fixing up, turning those homes and getting them uh, getting them refilled. So, so our occupancy is probably around uh, 45 to 50% right now. And at forty-five to fifty percent, are you guys break even, or are you hemorrhaging? Or? Yeah, it's about it's about break even. Yep, got it. And, and with the the new tenants that you're putting in for the ones that have left, 
are you seeing a better demographic or is it kind of just just in the same but just people that are you know willing to follow your protocols um i i would say a little bit better you know that's the thing you know you can if you want to increase your increase your occupancy you know you can bring people in and lower your standards we're trying to maintain uh, a higher standard to improve the park, to have people that are likely going to stay and, and pay for a longer time. That does take some, t- some time because you do then get a lot of applications for people that are kind of potentially bouncing around from place to place, may have been evicted or had criminal history or whatever it might be. So, uh, but from, you know, from somebody who's managing this, this asset for my investors, we do want to make sure we try to get the, the best tenants we can. And, and, and because tenants now know that if they don't pay, they will get evicted. It caused them to behave better because they know they can't take advantage of the system. And if they don't pay rent, they're going to have to move out. Got it. And you are charging. So what are you charging now? Like 225, 250, that kind of thing? Um, well, for the, no, the 600, house, you said 600. It, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. So probably for the maybe some one bedroom units we have probably around 450 for a bigger three bedroom. I think we're, I think the last one we rented was uh, either six or 650. Got it. And how did you find this deal? This one I actually found uh, through a, a place called the MHP Broker. Uh, they're actually based in Georgia, but they get listings in different parts of the country. Uh, and I was looking on looking on LoopNet and on Crexy and uh, getting connected with other brokers. There's there's a few mobile home park brokers or the, the, you know brokers that uh, specialize in them. Other times they're just a local residential or commercial broker that just gets a listing. So I was looking at kind of sources all over the place and through this company, the MHP broker, they're the ones that had this listing. I see. And how long it had been on the market? Um, it had been on the market. It had fallen out of escrow twice, which is... Because uh, they couldn't get a loan, right? That's right, right. Yeah. And, and and when we first met the seller, he goes, no, no, I don't want to carry back a nut. I don't want to do seller financing. And we convinced him that we said, hey, like, you know, we want to buy this park. You know, it's already fallen. We know it's already fallen out of escrow twice. You know, if you really want to sell this park, you're just going to have to do it. And we also explained to him, too, that from a capital gains standpoint, he would only have to pay capital gains on the amount of the down payment we gave him versus the entire purchase price. So, you know, it would allow him to do a little bit of tax planning because he didn't actually need all of that, you know, the entire proceeds from the park. And when you say we had convinced him of of doing the seller carry, who's the we in that context? Uh, myself and then one of the consultants for CCI, who I did my site visit and due diligence trip with. I see. You know, and that was good. That was, there was some credibility because, you know, this guy could look at him and say, hey, you know, like, we buy and sell parks all the time. We've seen these situations before. We know what banks are like. We know that these <laughs> things work. And, you know, if you want to get this deal done, then you're going to have to do this. You know, I, uh, Todd, I am a really, really cynical guy, you know, <laughs> for, for reasons that are not even appropriate to get into here. But um, when I hear, and part of it is I've been burnt doing dumb stuff in real estate, right? That's my fault. And some of the stuff I've done on my own that was a disaster. And some of the stuff I've invested with people that really 
weren't much better than me, even though they were yeah, real estate. Yeah, same here. <laughs> oh, oh, it's okay. So when I hear, so so what I what I'm really loving about this conversation is that me being the cynic that I am, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, this first of all, Todd does this in some god you know forsaken part of georgia even though yes it's a, a mile from uh, i'm sorry an hour plus from from atlanta south of there which uh and, and you're doing it through a consultant in the valley you know i'm, I'm just thinking I'm, I'm just seeing one red flag after another if i'm putting myself in your position <laughs> going uh, all the ways that the and that they're and that they're somehow going to manage this thing i'm thinking how does this how does this thing work? And yet I'm not hearing you say anything other than good things about the arrangement and that the resource that, that they've been pretty much reliable. They've, they've, I mean, those aren't the words you're using, but this is what I'm getting through the, the lines that they've done what they said they've going to, what they, they have done what they said they would do. And even though it's been painstaking uh, to no fault of theirs or yours or, you know, around COVID, that you're kind of like, you know, you're heading in the right direction on this thing and it's going to turn into being a fantastic investment. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, you know probably like with any uh, yeah, yeah like any real estate deal. There's always kind of like all the junk happening underneath. So there's yeah there's been times where I've been super happy with the arrangement. Yeah, it's working well. And other times maybe I, I could probably compare it to even when I had single family houses in Texas. So I, I had a what I would say a good property manager, most of the time really responsive. And other times, like they wouldn't respond or they wouldn't get the right bid on something. And they would be like, ah, oh, like nobody would look after, nobody looks after your property as much as you would if you were managing it directly, which is probably the case. So I would say, you know, there have been times where I felt like uh, if I was living locally to the park, I would have been able to address the situation faster and maybe have dealt with it and got through something quicker. That being said, uh, that's not the kind of business I want to be in. So if you're managing parks or managing assets, you do have to rely on other people and, and, and manage them. And sometimes the situation works out really well. And other times you've got some hiccups along the way. So, um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a good relationship. It's not, not perfect all the time for sure. And part of it is the mobile home park, asset class itself and then uh, combined with that having a, a turnaround park where you are in the process of rehabbing homes changing the reputation um, compared to perhaps buying a park that's you know 90 percent occupied or running pretty well and there doesn't uh, there's not much heavy lifting to do interesting yeah so it's well and for for guys like you and i because of where we live even if we wanted to be operators you know, it just even mobile home parks, you know, within 200 miles of where you and I live that they're, you ain't buying, you're not buying 70 parks for 825 grand. So you almost have no choice anyway, you know, but to yeah, rely yeah, on other people. True. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and also from a, uh, that this, the, the business is not because the kind of maybe the people you're dealing with as managers, it doesn't lend itself to some of the same technologies that I'm used to using just even whether it's like, oh, like what tool can we use? Can we use some like, instead of them hand filling out this form and faxing or scanning it to us, can't we give them a, you know, an online form that they fill out? And, and it's like, no, you can't ask a, you know, 60 year old retired military guy you think is <laughs> great keeping an eye on the park and collecting rent and keeping things clean. That's not maybe not the same guy who's going to be, you know, on his smartphone 
you know, using Slack or Apple Pay. <laughs> right, right. But fortune favors the brave. And so I, <laughs> I guess if you get the thing up to 70% occupancy with the current rents that you're getting, what ultimately will your cash on cash look like? Well, actually, it's interesting that this park right now, we're actually under contract to sell it. Ah, no um, kidding. Which has been, uh, which is, I think it's going to be a, you know, a good result for my investors. Uh, and because of, you know, we had this long stretch of, you know, long stretch where we didn't collect anything from tenants, some as long as 18 months, we were burning through a lot of our reserves to continue to maintain the parks. You still have to maintain the houses, even if somebody's in there not paying rent. So we got to the point where it was like, okay, we've got, uh, you know, we're through COVID, we've got a lot of the bad tenants out, like, what do we do at this point? And because we had used a lot of the reserves we raised up front, it was a choice of either, okay, everybody, let's put some more money into this park, um, continue through with our plan, get it, you know, as much filled up as we can, and then we'll kind of follow our, you know, five-year exit plan. Um, around that same time, uh, this other client of CCI's who owns a uh, owns another park found out that I own this park and I was considering selling it, and he was interested in buying it. So at that point in time, I was able to go to my investors and say, okay, here's a choice. We can either, you know, do a capital call, put another couple hundred thousand dollars in this park, stick with it for another couple of years and sell it kind of after our five-year plan, or we can sell it now and we'll end up getting, you know, my projects at this point will be our, uh, you know, IRR over the whole period will be around 12%, 11 to 12%. So not the projections that I expected when I bought the park pre-COVID, but, you know, still okay, considering everything that happened that we really couldn't have planned on when we bought the park. Well, you know, to come out at, you know, 11 or 12 percent, that's uh, better than a, a, a sharp poke in the eye, you know, <laughs> sharp stick in the eye or whatever the saying is. Well, I guess, I guess you know, having survived this and, you know, or it looks like you're going to have it, well, that will be past tense if this deal closes. Uh, what do you do from here? Do you, do you modify the model or is it kind of just, do you think you've identified a great model and you just stick with it and you know, hopefully something more pernicious than COVID doesn't, you know, appear. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, like at this point in time, so I, I ended up buying another park uh, in Arkansas last year. And that was actually a, a joint venture with just uh, one other guy who'd been wanting to get into the, the business for a while and, and decided to do that one as a joint venture versus a syndication, just in terms of the uh, amount of capital we were going to need to put into the park over time. Um, so so after I sell the Georgia Park, I'll still have the one in, in Arkansas that we're running and also kind of in a turnaround process for. After that, I also had looked was involved just a couple months ago in a exercise, a capital raise to buy an apartment portfolio in the Carolinas because I found uh, some good partners here actually based locally who are working with a really large apartment operator uh, based in Austin. And they came to me and kind of, you know, shared this opportunity with me. And I thought that would be a great some you know great investment to offer my investors. Uh, while I love mobile home parks and it's a great 
there's a great story around parks in terms of the need for affordable housing and being able to buy from mom and pop operators and it's still kind of being a, a niche market out there. I'm still a big believer in multifamily in general. And because this apartment portfolio opportunity presented itself, I decided to bring my investors in on that deal. So I, going forward, I'm going to continue to look for deals similar to that as well, where there's some good established apartment operators to work with, uh, while at the same time, seeing if there might be some uh, probably less less heavy lift mobile home parks to purchase. So, so I think that would probably be like a, a, a lesson learned or something I would do differently would just be from a kind of from a risk reward uh, standpoint to look for something that's not quite as heavy a lift. Yeah, I. Uh, you don't have to convince me how that makes sense. I yeah, I mean, the potential imagine. returns can be better, uh, and because the there's the cap rates have compressed in mobile home parks as people are looking for better yield than what they were getting in apartments. There's more competition in the space, so there's still uh, a lot of good things happening in it. But it makes finding you know the deals that people used to find ten years ago with you know, all tenant-owned home parks at a 10 cap, uh, those just don't exist anymore because everybody wants those. So to to make good money in parks now, it is often a case of trying to find parks that are maybe at, you know, 50% occupancy with a lot of vacant lots or vacant homes and, you know, putting in that effort over time to really make the asset do really well. Yeah. If we could just, uh, if we knew 10 years ago what, what we know today about that, about self-store, frankly, any any of this stuff, I mean, it's just yeah, gone yeah. zoo, but especially mobile home parks, to your point, I mean, a 10 cap on, you know, on tenant on homes, I mean, it's it's mailbox money. Well, I guess, um, Todd, I think, you know, we're up at, at the top of the hour and uh, how would one get a hold of you? They can reach me at my website, which is blueelminvestments.com. It's like the color blue, elm like the tree, investments.com. Uh, my email is todd, T-O-D-D, at blueelminvestments.com. Uh, if you go to my website, there's a, a download for a, a book that I, book project that I was involved in called Success Habits of Super Achievers, where I was able to co-author along with 80 other you know, really uh, well-known people in the you know, personal development space like Darren Hart. Hardy and Brian Tracy, and um, also some athletes like Todd Stottlemyre. And, um, and I have a chapter in that book where we just kind of share our success stories and tips and tricks for um, how we've had success in our business. So they can go to my website and sign up for my investor club and download that book if they'd like. Sounds fantastic. And uh, look, man, uh, fortune favors the brave. You've got cojones and uh, you'll <laughs> you'll continue to reap the rewards of that. I'm positive. So very Thank much very appreciated. Much. And let's, let's do this again at some point, uh, maybe Absolutely, after, yeah. after the turn of the year. Sounds good. Appreciate Thank, it, Roger. Thanks, Todd. And I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.